Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great pleasure to have welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Patrick Hiller. Patrick Hiller is the executive director of the War Prevention Initiative by the Jubitz Family Foundation and teaches in the Conflict Resolution Program at Portland State University. As a peace scientist, his writings and research are related to the analysis of war and peace and social injustice. Among other involvements, Patrick serves on the executive committee of the Governing Council of the International Peace Research Association and on the coordinating committee of World Beyond War, where he works with me at worldbeyondwar.org. Patrick Hiller, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you for having me, David. Uh, it's great. It's great. I don't know why you haven't been on here earlier. We'll have to have you again. Uh, the War Prevention Initiative has just created a new publication called the Peace Science Digest. And the first issue, uh, I have to say, is wonderful. Um, and I want to talk about a number of the articles in it. But, but first, what is, what is peace science? What is that about? Uh, well, that, that's the good question, one that I keep on getting. So I'd, I'd love to address that. I think in its shortest form, peace science is is really the research and theory needed to guide peace workers to produce more enduring and positive peace. So, I mean, now we're looking really as an academic discipline. We have our graduate programs. There are more than 450 on the world now. There are handbooks, research tools, theories, associations, journals, and conferences. So I'll use my own example. I, I earned a doctorate degree in conflict analysis and resolution. So now I teach that at at Portland State, um, where there's a master's program in conflict resolution. As you mentioned, I'm on the executive committee of a of a peace research association. I don't know how many people even know that there is such an organization. And we have conferences, we network, we have our journals. So in my own teaching I can, and research, I can resort to material like the Handbook of Conflict Resolution or the Handbook of Peace and Conflict Studies. The point is, uh, peace science is real, and I think it's here to stay. And, and to some extent, uh, it is a science in that uh, you do studies and, and surveys and investigations and try to establish what works and what doesn't uh, through experience, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we can also say it simply... Uh, in our field, we study the, the causes of war and the conditions for peace, and we use scientific methodology that is quantitative and qualitative science. And what I think is quite unique about our field is really that it has that goal of actually contributing toward peace. And I, that's something I really want to uh, remind uh, my fellow peace researchers and, and those beyond. <laughs> and, and if I, yeah, do do the researchers sometimes forget the the sort of activist goal of of trying to increase peace? Uh, unfortunately, in fact, they do, and it is really. I mean, I know many since I'm involved in so many associations there, and I think it's not the fact that they are not <laughs> with us peace advocates in that regard, but they're still caught in the kind of in the paradigm of how to conduct science, uh, that whole notion of always being neutral. 
I'm actually I'm just in the middle of examining our own field. Um, I I reviewed uh, more than 200 articles right now from uh, peer-reviewed peace research articles that looked at uh, terrorism or uh, terrorists or terror uh, since uh, September 11th, uh, 2001. And very, very few actually in their solutions address the uh, the notion of getting rid of the military option to address terrorism. And I think that is somewhat of a failure in our field. Uh, one would think that a field of peace science wouldn't have a war option anywhere in it. I would assume that too, and this is something that I'm committed to in my own work, and where I also very publicly try to, to get our field of uh, peace researchers to be more more active and more clear. Um, I think it's not very useful if we we come up with good, there, there is tremendously good research, but I think we also need to com- combine that with really saying this is the alternative to military option and not putting it into, into a context where military options are still part of it. Yeah, well, I, I, as you know, I met not long ago with the director of the U.S. Institute of Peace, and she told me that the way to peace was sometimes through war, which would explain why that institute promotes wars. Uh, I, I, I guess the lesson is to uh, to find out if the peace, uh, the peace studies program and the peace science uh, you're learning from and reading uh, is actually advocating peace or not. Um, is that part of why? I mean, I sort of wanted to ask you why create a new journal. Presumably there are a number of journals out there. You just read 200 articles out of them. Why create the Peace Science Digest? Um, well, let me let me explain kind of our thinking, how, how we got to that. I mean, I, I will put out the basic assumption that peace science matters. Um, there is really... A, good, solid research coming out of it, but at the same time, and I'm, I'm going to take away that part about the kind of the neutrality there. I'm just going to say there are, there are really meaningful results. But as with most scientific communities, there is kind of the challenge of transferring that academic knowledge into practical application. And within our own field of peace science, I have to be very blunt. If the knowledge of peace science gets stuck within academia, it's useless. So so given the nature of academic publishing, so in particular we have academic research and journals, um, we are looking at three obstacles. The work is not accessible, it's not very understandable, and thereby not very useful. So, so let me explain. It's not very accessible because it is in peer-reviewed journals that are only available uh, in university databases. Or you can buy articles or entire journals at very high cost as an individual. And it's not understandable because that's the nature of academic writing, in particular when it comes to looking at research of quanti- uh, results of quantitative studies or, like I say, really solid statistical data. So, therefore, it's not very useful um, because um, we, we need... To, in academic publishing, there's not much space for really going into the practical suggestions of what does this actually mean other than 
a few lines in the conclusion. And so I, I want, just want to be clear, the researchers here are not the ones to fault because this is simply the way they have to write and, and present their material to get published. Um, but with this Peace Science Digest, we are looking at a way to get beyond those limit, limitations of academic journal publishing, especially in the field where I said where we need to inform practice on how to bring about peace. We're speaking with Patrick Hiller, Executive Director of the War Prevention Initiative. You can go to warpreventioninitiative.org and find Peace Science Digest. And Patrick, my impression from the first issue is that you have succeeded wonderfully because these are very clear, short summaries of scientific studies and surveys, and then they're followed by recommendations or how to make use of this information. Um, it, it, maybe we could go to the first article in the first issue uh, and, and talk about the topic there, which is uh, a study that claims to have proven that public support for wars goes down significantly uh, in, in a couple of cases. One is when alternatives, when the existence of alternatives to wars is made known. Do, do I have that right? Uh, absolutely. It shows to me that we were successful. <laughs> but that's exactly how, how we were trying to get that information out. And now just think about the actual title of this, just the title alone of this um, article, which is called Norms, Diplomatic Alternatives, and the Social Psychology of War Support. That, that, now, we're already that's not the article in your digest. That's the, the article you're drawing from. Exactly, yeah. But the point is, the original article, the peer-reviewed article, is already, um, the title alone is already not as useful as what we're trying to do in in our digest here. Uh, and as you said, this is, there's something really important in that article. That is, when the public is made aware of diplomatic alternatives, there is a decline in support for war. And we don't get that if we look at our, our current national conversation. It always seems that, well, war is the last support and we've exhausted all other options. And, and how, did they, how did they prove this, that, that, that people prefer alternatives or, or less supportive of war if they know there are alternatives? How did they establish that? Um, well, th that is when they had a group of participants, and we, we very briefly addressed that um, in the article, because we do want to go away from um, kind of going too much into the methodology and kind of the, the, the nuts and bolts of the science there to come to the results. Yeah. But they essentially looked at groups and gave them uh, different options, um, different scenarios where they measured the levels of support based on whether they were made aware of diplomatic or other nonviolent alternatives or not. And within those, they, they found, got to those results. And um, but again, I think kind of one of our... Yeah, just feel like one of the, the reasons why we are trying to get away from the nuts and bolts of the research is because we, our point of departure is that this is a peer-reviewed article, and it is already been scrutinized um, to be published in one of the top journals in the field. So we don't want to spend too much time on that, but really go to, to what's in there and what does it mean. 
Well, I, I think you're probably absolutely right in that approach. I just think that I mean, it's interesting to me, at least, and maybe to some of our listeners, that that when they asked people, "Do you support? Would you support this war?" Uh, and there are no alternatives, uh, they got strong support. When they asked people, "Would you support this war?" But here are some alternatives. They got low support. And when they asked people, will you support this war, and didn't say anything, there are alternatives, there aren't alternatives, just silence. Well, then they got the same level of support as if they had said there are no alternatives. So that their conclusion was, if I understand correctly, that people are just assuming that there are no alternatives if they aren't mentioned, that their good government officials have done the same as they or their friends would do and tried everything else but war first uh, and presented war only because it was a last resort. Now, why, given our government's records, anyone would make that assumption uh, is beyond me, but it's, it's interesting that that seems to be the assumption being made, that, that, that politicians are, are decent people. Absolutely, and that's why I think with this highlighting this research and, and using that in, in our work as peace advocates, I think we really need to be out there uh, singing it from all the rooftops that all we have all those alternatives, because this is how we actually can uh, decrease the public support for war. And this is actually a particular area that I work on and my organization at the War Prevention Initiative. Uh, when it comes to, to ISIS, Syria, the, the, the Iran nuclear deal, we did very uh, solid work on providing uh, nonviolent alternative responses to the well-known military options that are out there. And we did that based on insights from peace science. And I'd like to say to a certain extent we were successful in different areas, but I think this is just the beginning of kind of paths that peace advocates can engage in. I, I agree that you have been on that and doing great work on that, and it's very much in demand. Everyone wants to know if if, if you don't bomb ISIS, what is it that you would do instead? Uh, there's a huge demand for that, and you can show it to people, and they can refuse to understand it and go on demanding it. But, but I, but I think it's it's very very useful, and there of course has been some success, at least on the on the Iran agreement. Um, what what about past wars, wars that have already been started in years and decades gone by, and showing people that there were specific alternatives to those particular wars. Do, is there reason to believe that, that that could be helpful if we were able to make people aware of those alternatives? Well, absolutely. I think, I mean, that's also work that you have been doing very well and that we're integrating in our common work at World Beyond Wars is looking at the whole mythology around war, because many of the past past wars are really based on a series, and our understanding of them, based on a series of myths. So I would certainly integrate that and, that, and make it clear, not everything has to be <laughs> peace science. We don't see that this, our peace science perspective and the digest is the one answer to all. We think it's a contribution and a needed one, in a broader framework of understanding those matters and working toward ending war. The other uh, finding, if I understood correctly, in this first article was that 
if the politicians are not unanimous in their support, support for war, then the public is less supportive or tolerant of the war. I, I mean, does that suggest that, you know, Barbara Lee alone voting against the war back in 2001 made a significant difference or a handful of, of politicians speaking up could make a significant difference in terms of public support for a war? Yeah, I think so, and I think that there there can is an opportunity to almost drive a wedge into the political landscape um, by by kind of uh, moving beyond that consensus that um, of war support in Washington D.C. The uh, and I think numbers matter there, <laughs> so I think it's it's a matter of of moving forward person by person when we look at um, our lawmakers. The uh, the second article in this uh, first issue, which is full of incredibly useful information, uh, is is opens up a, a lot of questions for me. Uh, can you can you describe the basic finding about how quality of life and and the tolerance in a society impacts a society's willingness to to go to war or to allow a war? Yeah, that's a, a good one and somewhat tricky one. So I, I, I still have my questions around that. But essentially, um, this study looks at how quality of life impacts individuals' willingness to take up arms. So this study finds that when people experience higher life opportunity, they become less willing to give their life in, services, in service to their country's wars. Um, so life opportunities here, for example, are education, uh, income, life expect expectancy, or living conditions. Um, so let me look at this maybe in a, in a practical, uh, in a meaningful practical way. Uh, we have ISIS. So what is sold to our public is that there's a homogeneous group of violent religious extremists. Well, they're not that homogeneous. Uh, there are, in fact, most of the fighters are young men with no life opportunities. So just imagine if the focus here is on education, jobs, improving living conditions, then we are taking away one of the primary recruiting tools for the fighters. Obviously, another one is uh, the uh, military engagement in the Middle East, primarily by the U.S., which is probably the primary recruitment tool there. Now, were were there two arguments in this in this case that that the quality uh, of your life, prosperity, security, and so forth, is one thing that that makes you less likely to to support war or going to war, uh, and the other is is the level of social tolerance in your society, gender equality, sexual liberation, and so forth. Yes, exactly. I mean, I personally think the importance in this study lies and looking at the life opportunities the way I just described it. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the point about socially tolerant values um, has to do that when, when within a society pro-choice values rise, uh, the willingness to sacrifice uh, declines, essentially. But again, I kind of draw more, I can draw more out of the life opportunities in terms of what it means um, to advance uh, yeah, 
the work of peace advocates. Too. I mean, it, it makes a certain logical sense that on the, the one hand, we're talking about the value of someone's own life, and so they become less willing to go and sacrifice their life. And on the other hand, we're talking about people's ability to value the lives of others who are different from them, uh, which could decrease their willingness to uh, to support the bombing of, of foreigners. Um, I, I mean, it's, it makes a certain sense that both of those could be right. Um, the uh, exactly. the the authors suggest this, or at least the first the first part of that, as as a, an explanation for the lack of wars between the rich countries since World War II. Um, I mean, it seems to me there may be a combination of explanations in the existence of nuclear weapons, the establishment of laws, cultural turns against war. Um, I think clearly not. Uh, the existence of democracies, um, which you actually have another article about in in issue one. But, uh, I I mean, is this really a new explanation for why the the big, rich countries haven't gone to war? Well, I don't know if it's a new explanation in that regard. I think, and I'd also add, we don't always need new explanations. We sometimes need commonly believed and held assumptions proven by some of the uh, research that is out there. But I don't, I don't hold, hold it. It seems wrong to yeah. me. I mean, it seems like the United States is very well off, very wealthy, at least relative to much of the world, at least for some people here, and is war crazy. And Europe is roughly as well off, better, better quality of life in some ways, uh, and is more war averse. Uh, it seems there must be other factors at work. Right. And I mean, that, that is the beauty of... <laughs> research like that um, and I would always I, I always emphasize when we have those findings I would uh, explain in a way that what we found here contributes to can be a contributing factor to instead of kind of putting it out there is a, a sole explanation for and that leaves the space that we need for other other factors and explanations um, that we have to certainly examine in our own country, why we are so uh, keen on fighting war after war after war. Yeah, that seems right to me, and it seems like there is a connection between intolerance uh, domestically and support for wars, Um, and and that, too, seems to make sense in terms of the United States as as an outlier. I I mean, there was a a Gallup poll... uh, uh, last year, in which 44% of people in the United States claimed they would go to war uh, for their country. And of course, thankfully, they are not all going to recruitment stations and signing up. But that compared to 18% in Germany, 15% in the Netherlands, 10% in Japan, or going the other way, 66% in Israel. Uh, it, it doesn't, you know, there doesn't seem to be one simple factor that could be making those differences. Right, and I, I fully agree, and that's where we have to continue to, to explore all the factors and see how we can, can manage them and intervene and transform them, if that is if we are interested in doing what uh, you and I and millions of others are doing, that is creating a world beyond war. 
yeah, and and it's wonderful that these articles conclude with recommendations for what to do because it seems like m in many cases this information could be twisted uh, different ways. Right? I mean, the, the United States claimed that, you know, Vietnamese society was intolerant and didn't value its lives. And if they valued their lives, they would give up. Uh, and because they valued life cheaply, we should go ahead and kill more of them. Uh, and, and, you know, it seems like if, if a tolerant society if, with Western values is the way to peace, you know, that could be an argument for bringing tolerance and prosperity uh, to poor countries, or it could be an argument for uh, imposing uh, Western control on poor countries for their own good, uh, depending who's spinning the information. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and um, I mean, this was really also our, you mentioned it, how we, we actually have some recommendations and we were very conscious about how we're structuring our, our digest, where we analyze each article on, on no more than two pages. And then for each article, we, we provide uh, uh, some thoughts on why is it relevant beyond academia, what are the key talking points, and then we offer some practical implications. And, I mean, I want to be very clear and also humble about this effort at this point. This is what we're looking at is what we call our, our pilot uh, issue, and we're, we've launched a survey together with, with the Peace Science Digest, and we're very interested in, in getting feedback on how this resonates with folks out there and how they can use it, because this is uh, not an academic exercise for sure, and this should be a useful tool uh, for those of us uh, who are peace advocates. How, how can people check it out and give you that feedback? Well, we have it. It's free at our website, and uh, you can get there through either communication.warpreventioninitiative.org, and there is an online viewer, and you can download it as a PDF. And we actually printed a few of them just to see how it looks, and they, they really look fantastic. Um, and we have a link to the survey um, on the homepage, and we'd uh, be happy to have feedback. And I, I will talk to anyone who wants to call or email me and, and chat about that. Um, and my email address is uh, philler at pdx.edu. So go to warpreventioninitiative.org or go to communication.warpreventioninitiative.org. Really quickly, Patrick, uh, there's another article that I think confirms with hard facts and data something that many of us have always suspected, uh, that where you, you report that third-party intervention is up to 100 times more likely when a country at war has large reserves of oil or the foreign intervener has a higher demand for oil. Uh, not, not terribly shocking, but wonderful to have the data on, I would say. Absolutely, and I, that might have been the single article that really drove us toward creating this Peace Science Digest. Because I could not, because I'm actually one of the seven people who read those articles, the actual journal articles. Yeah. And I could just not believe that something as meaningful as that is tucked away within the walls of academic uh, publishing. 
And like you said, this is not surprising or shocking to hear that we're going to war for oil. But we can now back this assumption with strong evidence. And I think that uh, you already summed it up, so I don't, I don't have to do that again. Well, it's But when oil... Yeah. It, 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 we're running out of time, Patrick, but it's a wonderful service. It's some, there's a question debated in the public uh, forums and answered in an obscure journal, and you're making the answer available to people. Uh, it's terrific. People should go to communication.warpreventioninitiative.org. Patrick Hiller, thank you for coming on Talk Nation Radio. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, David. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.